The sermon text this morning is Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the, fulfill the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. How are we to live as followers of Christ? In view of the mercies of God in sending his son to die for our sins and to declare us righteous in his sight, what should the rest of our lives look like? Well, Paul's been answering that question since the beginning of chapter 12. He's told us how to think about ourselves, how to relate to one another in the church, how to live with those outside the church. Last week, we talked about how to relate to the government. And in this final section of chapter 13, Paul returns to a theme he introduced earlier in chapter 12, a theme that gives shape to how we relate to everyone, and that's love. Paul says we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices and to renew our minds. And one way to do that is to not think of ourselves more highly than we should. Instead, we should use our gifts in the church to serve one another. He says love should be genuine. It should be free of hypocrisy. It should be real. It's not a veneer of niceness. In fact, we see that genuine love is radical. We're told that if our enemies are in need, we're to feed them and give them something to drink. Even in terms of our relationship with the government, there should be an honor and a respect out of due reverence for God. So love is the controlling factor in how we should think about all of these different scenarios. In our passage this morning, Paul is both looking back to chapter 12, but he's also linking up with what he's about to talk about in chapter 14, where he warns the Roman church to not allow their love and unity to be threatened by disputes over food laws. Chapter 14, verse 5, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So we see that the heart and soul of the new covenant ethic is love. Paul even makes the sweeping statement that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Christians are living in a new era of salvation history. Christ has come. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and love is the defining mark of our relationships with other people. And Paul says it's time that we wake up to this fact. The sands of time are sinking. The day is at hand, he says. Time is of the essence. Jesus is coming back. So Paul urgently calls us to a holy life of love in view of our coming salvation. Two points this morning, two aspects of how we should live in these last days. First, we should live with a debt of love. We should live like we owe a debt of love to everyone we meet. That's verses 8 through 10. 
Second, we should live in light of the day. We should live holy lives like we are waking up to the new dawn of salvation. That's verses 11 through 14. So live with a debt of love, live in light of the day. So first, let's look at this debt of love that we owe. Verse 8 says, owe no one anything. You might say, I've got a mortgage, so that's kind of problematic. How, How does that work out? Paul is not forbidding All borrowing, if you just look back at verse 7, he says, pay to all what is owed them. If you owe taxes, pay them. If you owe revenue, you owe customs, whatever you owe, pay it up. Fulfill whatever obligations you have made. So he's not saying don't ever take out a loan. He's saying pay what you're obligated to pay. Pay according to what you promised. Clear your debts. Owe no one anything except to love each other. So, So there's one debt. Paul cleverly says, that you never get out of. There's one debt that you will forever be repaying. And that's the debt of love you owe every person who crosses your path. Paul is not just talking about how Christians should love one another. He's talking about how we should love anyone. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Moses from Leviticus, comes from the law. You'll remember the lawyer's question uh, to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus, in essence, tells him, that's the wrong question. You ought to be asking, how can I be a loving neighbor? We know that because of the parable that he tells him next about uh, the good Samaritan, right? If you want to be a good neighbor, you'll recognize that your neighbor is anyone whom God puts in your path. We owe them a debt of love, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, which law is he talking about? He's just finished talking about the government, but we know he's not talking about Roman law because of verse 9. He quotes from the Ten Commandments, so he's talking about the law of Moses. Paul boldly asserts that love fulfills the Mosaic law. Now, what does that mean? First of all, it's important to to see that Paul is simply following the teaching of Jesus here. In Matthew 22, another lawyer questions Jesus, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We find a similar statement in Matthew 7. Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying, if you want a summation of the Old Testament in terms of how you should relate to other human beings, it's the golden rule. You you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul will say the same thing in Galatians 5. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's exactly what he says here in verse 9. The commandments are summed up. In this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so what does it mean then that love fulfills the law? Well, it means that love gives full expression to the law. Love is the intended goal of the law. Love sums it up. And of course, this love is supremely exemplified and embodied in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to meet 
its demands. He came to be the Messiah it predicted. He came to be the culmination of the sacrificial system by becoming the sacrifice himself. Jesus shows us what love really is. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself for me. Loving your neighbor as yourself is impossible apart from faith in this one who is the very explanation of love. As John tells us, God is love. So don't make the mistake of reading verses 8 through 10 in a twisted, isolated kind of way like, okay, well, I am a, I'm a kind, courteous person who seeks the good of other people. It says here that, that if I love, then I have fulfilled the law. I've, I've met my obligation to God. I'm, I'm good with God then. I guess the Beatles were right. All you need is love, right? Well, as Tom reminded us a couple weeks back, love has to be defined. You don't get to make that call yourself. Love is not defined by your own wisdom and instinct. And plus, you got to go back and read the rest of Romans. You might sport yourself as a noble humanitarian, but the Bible says you're a sinner. That's the devastating news of the gospel. You are a sinner. In fact, you are more sinful and flawed than you can possibly imagine. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. And secondly, you can't turn love for your fellow man into a work you perform to find favor with God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's Romans 3.20. No, Paul here is talking to Christians who should already understand that the debt of love they owe to everyone else is a debt joyfully and gratefully rendered. We're not securing our salvation. We're not paying God back when we love others. We're simply thankful that he's loved us. And that gratitude just spills over into love for other people. Paul says in Ephesians, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's our model. That's our model. Christ is our model. It's by the mercies of God that we can love this way. So imagine you're upset at somebody. You're frustrated. Maybe you're in a long line at Target. It's 9 o'clock, you're tired, and you've, you've just got one carton of unsweetened almond milk. That, that's all. You, you just want to go home, okay? Your kids need this for breakfast. But the cashier is doing this, and the customer is doing that, and maybe you have a neighbor, and you find yourself, you're going to have to have that conversation with him again. So you stop, and you remember I owe this person a debt of love. How do your emotions change? How does your behavior change? It's really hard to stay angry at someone while meditating on verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love desires to do him good. What what does that actually look like? Well, Well, Paul has already given us some 20 commands, right, in the previous chapter on loving others well. So take that neighbor you're frustrated with. Everyone on the street knows he lets his dog do his business on your wife's flowers every morning. And you're almost in a rage. 
Chapter 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What do you do in such a situation? You're going to have to give thought. Give thought, it says. You're going to have to figure out how to love your wife and still pay a debt of love to this, your literal neighbor. And given the varied circumstances of life, sometimes the loving route is hard to discern, right? But I'm so glad that love fulfills the law because I don't have to go through reams of case law trying to figure out what my exact obligation is in any given situation. And you might think, well, that would actually make things easier, right? Just show me what I'm supposed to do. No, that would make you a legalist, not a Christian. No, the Christian is indwelt with the Holy Spirit and he's called upon to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's chapter 12, verse 2. This takes wisdom and maturity and prayer. You just might need to pray about it. Lord, what is the honorable thing to do here? What is the most loving thing I can do in this situation? You're not trying to merely satisfy a particular rule. You're living for the glory of God. Because the truth is, it's possible to keep the commandments yet fail to love. It's a little sub-point if you're taking notes. It's possible to keep the commandments yet fail to love. And this can get really absurd. It's like a husband coming home from work, kind of grunting to his wife, Wife, I did not commit adultery today. You're welcome. That's absurd. His debt of love is not going to get paid off with that. He, he is far from loving his wife. Or how about announcing to your coworkers on a Friday afternoon, everyone, I did not commit murder this week. I resisted the urge. Everyone is still alive. You met the civil code, but is that all that God requires of you? It sounds ridiculous, but on the other hand, I wonder how this might be playing out in your own life. How about fathers who put food on the table, they provide a roof for everybody's head, but they are emotionally disconnected from the rest of the family? Or maybe you're absolutely committed to church attendance. You're here every Sunday, but you never talk to anybody. You never take the time to bear somebody else's burdens, to to be a listening ear, to encourage someone. Maybe you're faithful to discipline your children. I mean, you're, you're on it, and Scripture certainly calls us to that. And yet, more often than not, your discipline is carried out in anger. It doesn't come from a heart of love. We learn a lot watching the Pharisees not get this principle. You remember when they asked the, um, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus, he overheard that one. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I think the standard the Pharisees were holding in terms of table fellowship was actually a misapplication of the law, but the point is, you can perform all the external religious rituals, but if you lack mercy, you have missed the will of God. What would loving your neighbor look like in view of the commands listed there in verse nine? Pull them together. You shall love your neighbor and not commit adultery against him. How would you live that out? 
well, you might say, I will seek to protect and safeguard his marriage bond. I will do nothing to threaten it. I will not covet his spouse. I will pray for his marriage to thrive and, and be a beautiful reflection of the way God loves the church. I want them to be happy in every conceivable way. You shall love your neighbor and not murder him. I will seek his good. I will see to it that he flourishes in life. I will never harbor hatred in my heart against him. Instead, I will ponder all I appreciate about him. I will consider my words. What what kind of words are regularly coming out of my mouth? Am I a person who takes life with my words or am I a person who gives life with my words? I will care for his physical needs. I, I will look after his bodily safety even if it costs me my own. Now that's love. You shall love your neighbor and not steal from him. So I will seek to preserve his possessions just like they were mine. And when I can bless him with something that I own, I freely give it. You shall love your neighbor and not covet anything he has. Instead, I will rejoice that he has it. I'll be glad for him. I will work to cultivate a contented heart, trusting that God is good to me in all circumstances. And you can do this in your own journal. I hope you have one. Christians need to write down things sometimes. And you could just find a blank piece of paper right at the top. What does it look like to owe a debt of love in obedience to the Ten Commandments? Use your sanctified imagination. You can get creative with this. So we see that life in the new covenant is governed by an ethic of love. We owe a debt of love to everyone we encounter. And so that means our obligation is not merely to keep the commandment. You just read, just read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does not want mere external conformity to the law. He, he wants our hearts And that means our love should be expansive and deep. But let's let's turn this whole thing on its head for a moment. Love is certainly more than keeping the commandments, but it's not less. Love is the fulfilling of the law, and yet love can't be divorced from God's laws either. Anyone who says they are walking in love when they commit adultery or murder or steal or covet is a liar. So Paul, he is highlighting love here, but he's also saving us from being overly sentimental and from deceiving ourselves. He says back in chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. So if your understanding of love has no bounds except those you define for yourself based on your own feelings, then you will actually fail to love. I touched on this before. Love and law are not at odds. It it is true now. It is true that the Old Testament law in total is no longer binding on those who belong to Jesus Christ. We we covered this in chapter 7. Paul says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we are no longer bound by the law of Moses. We are bound to the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And and so we see that that love is still tethered to moral norms that reflect the character of God in the teaching of his son. Uh, We see that in the Sermon on the Mount, and we see that here in verse 9. God's commands, they're they're like banks of a river, right, that, that 
keep the river of love running freely. But sometimes those boundary lines, they get fuzzy in our minds. We, we still live in a fallen world. We, we still combat indwelling sin. And in those times, my ability to love people well is really helped along if I can stop and read in, in black and white, you shall not commit adultery. Not to belabor that particular sin, but it is, interestingly, the, the first one he lists. And he also mentions sexual immorality and sensuality in verse 13. So I had a friend who was tempted to be unfaithful to his wife. There was a woman in his office building who began to regularly come to his office. Uh, She wanted to befriend him, to talk with him, to share some of her own personal problems with him. This wasn't just once or twice. This became a pattern. It was not work-related in the least. He tried his best to politely put her off, but clearly she was trying to get as much personal time with him as she could. And by the way, ladies, I don't know the statistics. It could be nine times out of the ten, it's, it's, it's the other way around, okay? But in this case, it was the woman who was the pursuer. He told me one time, uh, she said, hey, let, let, let's go to dinner. What, what would be the harm? It's just, just dinner. And there was a picture of his wife right there on his desk. He picked it up and he said, this is my wife. I love her. Please do not come to my office like this again. And yet... On the way home, in the car, he begins to mentally calculate. Well, if I use the American Express, she'd never know. She she doesn't look at that statement. I could get get a hotel room. So he's making plans. He, He flips on the radio, and out comes booming this preacher's voice. If you commit adultery, you will be found out. And he almost wrecks the car, you know. He pulls over, bows his head, weeps. And he confesses to God the wicked thoughts of his mind. The Spirit of God brought conviction through the law of God, which resulted in confession and repentance, and he returned to walk in faithful love to his wife. And you might say, well, he was just afraid of the consequences. Well, I think there was more going on there than just fear, but nevertheless, fear has its place. The law is like smelling salts, right? It kind of jolts you back awake. Sometimes you need a merciful smack across the head. And this way, the law is good. Romans 7, 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I am not saying that God's commands are sufficient to bring life to a spiritually dead heart. That only comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But in this fallen world, The law does have a role of correcting and and guiding us. The law is like a mirror. You know, it it can't clean you up, but but it it can tell you when your face is dirty. One theologian said this, the law protects love from the subjectivism and self deception to which the Christian is constantly exposed, not because he is unjust, but because he is human. So, my point is, we can't define love however we like. Love does not float free from the commands of God. Love rejoices with the truth. Love is not in opposition to the truth. Love is holy. Well, now, at this point, some of you might just be saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
When will I finally be able to love others free from sin? When will my thoughts of others be only for their good? When will I finally get over myself and be able to love and serve someone else free from the fear of man? When will my love be genuine? When will I be like Jesus? The Apostle John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Paul understands this longing. He turns in verse 11 to encourage us to live in light of that coming day. He says, besides this, you know the time. So what's the this that he's referring to? It's all his exhortations in chapter 12 and 13. He's bringing them all together under this one motivation, the day is at hand. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples, your redemption is drawing near. So in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul calls for Christians to live in light of the past uh, by, by the mercies of God, he says. So in light of what God has done in sending his son to die for your sins, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But here in 11 four, through 14, Paul, Paul appeals for Christians to live in light of the future, a future that is already broken into the present. So a seismic shift in redemptive history has already taken place. Christ has come and he has rescued us. And yet the consummation of our salvation is yet future. The resurrection of our bodies. It's the already but not yet tension that we find all over the New Testament. And I would just say, swim in it. Ponder it. Enjoy it. The theologian Doug Moo says, Christians are not only to become what we are, we are also to become what we one day will be. So Paul, he pictures that point early, early in the morning. Night is nearly over. The pitch blackness is far gone. And yet it's not quite yet full day either. The hint of sunlight is peeking over the horizon. And we can, we can now make out our surroundings. Things are not swallowed up in darkness anymore. I, I can see. And so... He says, this is no time for sleeping. It's time to get up. There's work to be done. It's time to get dressed for the day. The time for night clothes is over. So I I put them off and and I put on the armor of light. This language, it's it's intuitive to us, right? Uh, Day and light, night and darkness. This is good and evil behavior. But there's certainly an end times dynamic going on as well. The night represents this present evil age that's coming to a close. The day is the day of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. And so then, he says in verse 12, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Just meditate on that. There is a way you should be arrayed. God has given you a wardrobe. And and it's hard not to read this as a call to arms. This is battle speech. John Calvin said, we are to carry on a warfare for the Lord. And and you see the proactive nature of sanctification. There's a casting off. There are things that must be mortified, sins that must be put to death. You look at the behaviors listed there in verse 13. These are sins of the night, and they do not befit Christians. Sins of addiction, sexual sin, social sins. Instead, we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to. You think again about putting on clothing. Tim Keller's got this great illustration. He says, if a man is in a tuxedo and a woman is in a long gown and high heels, they're going to act a certain way, right? They look themselves in the mirror and they say, I'm dressed for a formal occasion. So my behavior has got to correspond to that, right? It's time to be dignified and stately and respectful. But if you forget what you're wearing, and you start stretching and doing jumping jacks and uh, acting like you got your workout clothes on, number one, you're going to look pretty silly. And secondly, you're going to tear those clothes up. We've got to remember who we are wearing. What does it mean to put on Jesus? It means we imitate his character. It means we stay in close personal fellowship with him. We keep our hearts close to his. We rest in him and we strive to look like him. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So this is a daily, moment by moment, putting him on, being shaped into his likeness. Practice his presence. Imagine him him standing right there before you. How then would you live? When I was growing up, we had a little sign on the wall in our living room. It said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. For me to live is Christ. So remember, today you owe a debt of love. And who knows, it could be your last. You have but one life. We only have one life. In what way are you still sleeping? In what way do you still linger there, there in your bed? Is there an expression of love you have delayed to carry out? Is there a sinful pattern in your life that you need to cast off? You need to think, how can I expend myself for the sake of others in these fleeting days? You know, if you're running a race and you turn the corner and you can see the finish line there, what happens? Well, you suddenly find resources in yourself you didn't know you had. You just give it all you got, and you run faster. That's what Paul is doing for us. He's putting the finish line into view that we would run all the harder after Jesus Christ, giving of our lives for the sake of other people. We have a debt of of love that we owe. This is an urgent call. He says, you know the time, it's imminent. Every hour, our salvation draws closer. So friends, you and I may be looking into the face of Jesus Christ this very afternoon. No one knows. Either he will come for us or we will go to him. The wait will certainly be no longer than the length of your life. So until then, we should be known as a people who have a debt of love, doing deeds of light, until we take our very last breath or until we see Jesus Christ coming in the clouds. This is how Christians live. So let's take a moment now to reflect on these things and then I'll pray for us.